from the studios of Farm Journal Broadcast. This is Ag Day. A festive harvest. A lot more goes into your pecans arriving on your pecan pie than uh, people realize. We check out a staple of the holidays in Arkansas. Farmers will soon once again be able to use a familiar product to protect their soybeans as shipping problems compound. That increasingly has dwindled to a very marginal amount. How drought is impacting grain exports at the Panama Canal as troubles mount at other key waterways around the world. Right now on Ag Ag Day, presented by Pioneer. What's next happens when the name on the cap matches the power of one's purpose. Pioneer, what's next happens here. Good morning, I'm Clinton Griffiths. Shipping snarls are starting to grow as shippers face problems at several crucial thoroughfares, the Red Sea, the Suez Canal, and the Panama Canal. Now, many companies had been rerouting to the Red Sea to avoid delays at the Panama Canal due to drought. But as we've told you, attacks on commercial vessels in the Red Sea by Yemen's Houthi rebels have scared off some of the world's top shipping and energy companies. Ag Day's Michelle Rook joins us. And Michelle, you talked with one ag leader who recently visited the Panama Canal to get an update on the situation there. That's right. The State Transportation Coalition wrapped up their annual meeting in Panama this week where they toured the canal and got an update on how the drought is impacting grain exports. What they found is a substantial reduction in volume that isn't expected to improve anytime soon. The historic drought in low water levels are limiting the number of ships that pass through the Panama Canal from 36 to 40 vessels a day to currently just 22. And that will only move up to 24 per day in January with changes in water management. Officials with the Sway Transportation Coalition say that's driving up shipping costs. And so unfortunately, they observed very few dry vessels which carry grain going through this vital shipping lane. Uh, because they're having to, re to restrict the number of transits uh, on a daily basis, those ships that are in a position to use the canal are, are more of the container vessels, the, the LNG vessels, the, the, the vessels that are carrying automobiles. Those are, uh, those, are, those are customers of the canal that are able to pay a higher toll, um, be able to schedule their arrival with greater precision than with agriculture, where we have a lot of variability to, to our industry. Steenuk says 600 million bushels of soybeans, or 60% of the U.S. crop, is annually transported through the canal to export customers, particularly in Southeast Asia. But that volume has been cut substantially. In this fall, we've really seen that drop to less than 10%. Um, you know, during this critical time fr frame, like in October, November, you know, we're into December now. That that increasingly has dwindled to a very marginal amount that's that's going through the Panama Canal. And so all of a sudden there's just been this real shift, you know, whether it's through the Suez Canal uh, onto customers in Asia or shifting onto the rail network and trying to find a, a different alternative that way. However, the Suez Canal is also limited for grain as energy products have preference and many insurance companies have pulled coverage with Red Sea attacks. So that leaves rail and more grain as being shifted to Pacific Northwest export routes. Steenuk says that will give South America a real competitive advantage when their new crop is harvested in the next few months. I'm Michelle Rook reporting for Ag Day. All right, thanks, Michelle. While export sales have increased for U.S. crops in recent weeks, Brazil continues to erode market share to one of our biggest customers, China. Now, 
in November, Brazil overtaking the U.S. to become the largest corn supplier to China this year. So far, the country has shipped 8.8 .8 million metric tons of the grain in the first 11 months of the year. That's nearly 40% of China's import total. Compare that to U.S. purchases of 6.5 million metric tons, less than 30% of imports. Meanwhile, Brazil continuing to dominate soybean exports as well. China importing nearly 65 million metric tons this year, compared to roughly 20 million from the U.S. People across the northeastern U.S. are still cleaning up after torrential rains and damaging winds from Pennsylvania to Maine. Some of the worst damage was in Vermont and Maine, where hundreds of thousands of people were without power as of Wednesday. In Maine, the Kennebec River, which runs through Augusta and four other rivers in the state, were all seeing higher water levels than typical, leading to damage in road closures. The storm dumped more than five inches of rain in parts of New Jersey and northeastern Pennsylvania. Wind gusts reaching nearly 70 miles per hour along the southern New England shoreline. California has flipped in the past couple of years from being extremely dry to now facing almost too much rain. Meteorologist Matt Engelbrecht has an update. Yeah, in fact, if we look at the flooding potential, you can kind of follow the energy that's going to be crossing the United States, something that we've been talking about the last couple of days. Doesn't look like much, but it is something pretty significant. About a 15 to 40% chance of uh, some flooding uh, into uh, Southern California, including Los Angeles. This is on Thursday. As we take this into Friday, you see that move into parts of Phoenix, about a 5 to 15% chance of flooding. Uh, that energy is going to move over Texas, but watch what happens on Sunday. So that's going to be Christmas Eve. Uh, you got that 15 to 40% contour returning into Louisiana, the Arklatec area and back up here with the green more to the north into Missouri. Uh, so rain is on its way uh, as this uh, energy from the jet stream works from the west to the east. Go ahead, take a look at your screen and wow, spectacular sunrise. Uh, Maria sending this one in. I think she has sent in some before uh, they've been just as great capturing the moment in Illinois. Just a great way to start the day. I look more in your forecast coming up. The EPA is working on plans to allow popular pesticide chlorpyrifos to resume use following a recent court ruling. Now, last month, the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Eighth Circuit determined the EPA unlawfully revoked permission to use the insecticide back in 2021. The agency now expected to publish a notice saying chlorpyrifos can be used again. However, it's also expected to propose a new rule revoking pesticide residue tolerance for all uses except for 11 high benefit uses mentioned by the court. Now the pesticide was popular in states like Iowa, Nebraska, and Minnesota for corn, soybeans, and various orchard crops, including grapes. Ag leaders say this is a win for farmers in their battle to control insects and soybeans like spider mites. It's pretty huge. Uh, um, it common trade name for us is, is Lorsban. And so in certain areas, uh, it would be a tremendous loss not to be able to have that. There, there just aren't options some of the areas can use to replace that. Now, EPA is working with manufacturers to allow usage while safeguarding workers and endangered species. The Biden administration has a new plan to preserve America's old growth forests. The goal is to restore 112 million acres of mature forest land 
under federal management. Ag Secretary Tom Vilsack says it's the first nationwide amendment to U.S. Forest Service management plans in the agency's 118-year history. The USDA says mature woodlands are better suited to store more carbon than younger reforested ones, adding that old growth forests in Washington, Oregon, and California are capable of absorbing up to 10% of the nation's annual greenhouse gas emissions. The new measure would sharply limit commercial timber harvest in old growth forests while allowing logging to continue in mature forests that have not yet reached old growth stage. Drown Brazil may have impacted the crop, but markets are still focused on forecasts. We'll discuss that next in Markets Now. And later, harvesting a tasty treat for Christmas. We're off to Arkansas in the country. And we have another winner of the Case IH Holiday Giveaway. Julie Timmons Banks of Willards, Maryland is the winner of the Case IH Prize Pack. We'll announce the final prize pack winner tomorrow morning, and there's still time to register. This weekend, U.S. Farm Report will reveal the winner of the grand prize, a Farm All Seed Pedal Tractor, so you're running out of time to get signed up over at CaseIHHolidayGiveaway.com. Ag Day is sponsored by Germinator Steel Closing Wheels. Perfected in conventional, excels in no-till. Order your Germinator Closing Wheels today. Looks like a fertilizer plant in Iowa will change hands soon. Coke Ag and Energy Solutions is set to acquire the Iowa Fertilizer Company in Weaver, Iowa, which is owned by Netherlands-based OCI. That's in southeastern Iowa. The price tag, $3.6 billion. Now it's recognized as the first large-scale nitrogen fertilizer factory constructed in the U.S. in a quarter century. The plant has the capacity to produce 3.5 million metric tons annually of nitrogen fertilizers and diesel exhaust fluid, which helps reduce vehicle emissions. Commodities trending mostly lower midweek. Michelle Rook is back with what we can expect going into the holiday weekend in Markets Now. A down day in the greens on Wednesday. Garrett Toyan, Trader Talk, joining us. New contract lows in the corn market, Garrett, and really there's no story there in the corn market, is there? No, this, the situation remains the same as it has been for the last four to six weeks. Well, since harvest, and um, we new, like as you mentioned, new contract lows of four sixty eight and a quarter. Um, you know, it's it's market is very typical of a carry market, um, where December went off the board last week, and now March is basically assuming, um, you know, December prices. You, you watch price action this week. Um, earlier in the week, we went right to four seventy five, which was a key area in the December contract. Um, but, um, you know, these are, we're, we're kind of trying to forge some demand, uh, uh, finding here, um, you know, December contract or the December contract over the final two months of its, of its life basically traded a 455 to 480 type range. And, uh, so we're based, you know, assuming that then this March contract is towards the upper end of the, of its range at this point. Um, the thing that can, kind of concerns me a little bit is that, uh, um, you know, Chinese import margins have really contracted here over the last four to six weeks. Basically, I shouldn't say that four to six weeks, uh, since the first of the month, since they put out that record uh, uh, crop production number. Um, and so the import margins aren't quite there. So whether China is or, going to, or not going to be there uh, on, the, on this break uh, remains to be seen. What about soybeans removing a little Brazil weather premium with these rain chances? Yeah, forecast models today were a little bit wetter through January 2nd. Um, you know, most forecasts might be changes, but the, the, the algos are so tied into these weather models that, uh, you know, you can tell what the models are doing by, 
by how flat flat price reacts. Uh, the one interesting thing though is these the front end bean spreads are just absolutely screaming. So um, you know something's going to have to give either these spreads relax uh, to be more in line with flat price, uh, or uh, uh, futures are going to have to rally. All right, thanks for joining us here today with Ag Trader Talk. That's markets now, and we'll have more Ag Day coming up. Yeah, this map hasn't changed all that much. December 25th through the 29th, you have ample moisture on the East Coast, back behind me on the West Coast. West Coast. But as we just saw, uh, the rain potential moves through parts of Phoenix, Arizona, Texas, back down here in the Gulf Coast states before we get into the 25th. Once that energy moves out on Christmas, that time period between the 25th and the 29th, that wet weather moves to the East Coast and we dry back out uh, here into portions of the United States. And another system coming ashore uh, into California. What this looks like in regards to the precipitation estimate going forward, as you'll see the green build from the West to the East with that first system and then picking up more moisture with uh, the Gulf Coast states and some of that Gulf Coast, mo Gulf Coast moisture. Now this goes through 7 p.m. on Saturday, taking some light to moderate showers back up here into the Midwest. Temperatures, though, are going to continue to stay above average. This is through Christmas and the 29th, so right before we get into the new year. Still some early signs that as we uh, jump into January, you know, we may start to get some of those colder temperatures in and across the area, but again, not really showing up in the data between now and the end of the year. Again, that's the temperature outlook. Let's go ahead and take a look at what's going on in the jet stream and with the jet stream. So two pieces of energy, one back up here near Alaska, and this is the one that's going to open up that you know, rainfall potential for Southern California. It's going to try to phase with that energy to the north, but what's going on is the coldest of the cold air, including in this trough, is going to stay to the north. So this is going to be a warmer than average system resulting in rainfall in and across the United States and some significant ridging back over here towards the Midwest. There's a jet stream coming up on Monday. This will open up some moisture from the Gulf of Mexico back into the Midwest on Christmas as well. Clearwater, Florida, mostly sunny, high around 71 degrees, a low of 54. Houghton Lake into Michigan, cloudy, high around 36 degrees. And they'll also go over to uh, Oregon. Should I try it? Sure. Tillamook, sunny, high about 53. Cattle margins seeing another drop last week. The latest sterling beef profit tracker is showing that Losses for cattle feeders last week averaged $110 per head. Now that's the worst margin since August of 2020. Meanwhile, beef packers saw their margins improve $44 per head, which pulled packer margins out of the red. Cattle feeders have now seen a month's worth of losses on closeouts. For the week ending December 16th, cash cattle prices averaged $168 per hundredweight, about a dollar less than the previous week. Cattle sold last week carried a total feed cost of $437 per head. That's down about $79 from a month ago and down 24% from a year ago. Brazilian prosecutors are taking on the world's biggest meat producer. Brazilian prosecutors are suing multinational meatpacker JBS along with three smaller slaughterhouses. Now they're accusing them of allegedly buying cattle directly from illegal ranches in a protected area. The lawsuits include a type of evidence they say uses transit documents that reportedly show a direct sale of cattle from deforested protected areas 
to the meatpackers. Now, JBS has declined to answer questions from the Associated Press, which originally reported on this, saying it has not been summoned by the court, which makes it impossible to conduct any analysis yet. Wildlife officials have released five gray wolves into a remote forest in Colorado. It kicks off a voter-approved reintroduction program. The plan was embraced in the state's mostly urban areas, but staunchly opposed in rural communities where ranchers worry about the predators attacking livestock. The wolves were set free in Grand County in a location that state officials kept undisclosed to protect the predators. America is the world's largest producer of pecans. Up next, we'll visit an Arkansas producer sharing its bounty for Christmas in the country. Pecans sold by grocery chains are typically at least one year old. However, fresh locally grown nuts make a yummier Christmas and one nut house in North Little Rock, Arkansas has a lot of them. The Arkansas Farm Bureau shows us this merry harvest. I started in the pecan business about six years ago, working for the family that started the planted the orchard and started the retail space. And then we had the opportunity to buy it from them. Our workforce is 99% family owned and operated. Husbands, wives, kids are all on the workforce. We both get to do a lot of the work with our families, which really does make it enjoyable. I think they're learning a lot of valuable lessons. We homeschool our kids, so you honestly, you can get that done in less than the eight hours it takes your traditional day, So, but they're still learning all of their reading, writing, math during the day, getting that all done, but then also we have a little time for them to help out at the nut house as well. We retail and process pecans right on the east side of North Little Rock in central Arkansas. We retail 100% of what we harvest, which is 80% of what we retail. Our orchard, we've got about 222 trees here on 22 acres. Our trees are about 25 years old. Some are younger, some are older. We've got them on a 60 by 70 foot spacing to give them plenty of sunlight and space for nutrients. This past year we did a lot of pruning. Come down in the summer, did a lot of pruning. We had that windstorm. Uh, in July, I felt like we were just never-ending pruning. It's a year-round operation. We do a fertilizer right in the spring around March, April, and then uh, we'll start in on our sprays uh, about that time. Every two weeks, we're on a spray cycle for fighting scab, which is a fungus, and then we've got some insects later on in the season that we, uh, we try to keep off the trees. You mentioned the brown on the, the trunks. That's actually the rust that comes out of our well water. Every tree has its own sprinkler head right at the base of the tree. So every tree gets its own water source. We'll probably get around 15,000 pounds this year out of our orchard. It's a good year to be in the pecan business. We have a heavy crop load in the region. Sometimes John will come out here with a group of people will be harvesting and then we'll, my family will be at the nut house running the nut house just kind of make sure we get everything going all at once. Retail's going well and people are harvesting a lot of pecans and bringing them to us to process. We crack for the public and for other orchards. For me, what's been most enjoyable is I feel like we completely trust each other. Like we're really good friends. We know the ethical standards that we each have. And I feel like there's just 100% complete trust in the decisions that either one of us is making. That really does make it a lot easier to have a lot less worry. That's probably one of the most enjoyable parts. And then I really enjoy the farming aspect of it and it's been a really great experience. We have different varieties that ripen at different times. So we have a Pawnee, which is an early ripening variety so we can get the early market before Thanksgiving, which is the premium market to get into. 
we really want to have pecans available as early in the season as possible. The most popular variety is uh, called a Desirable. It's got a long history, uh, very popular in Georgia and around here. Uh, it's our most requested variety. We've got an online store now, which we launched in January, so people can order for shipping around the country or they can order online and come to the store and pick it up. A lot more goes into your pecans arriving on your pecan pie than uh, people realize. And our thanks to the Arkansas Farm Bureau for sharing that story with us. That's all the time we have this morning. We're sure glad you...